Um, let's pray uh, and ask the Lord for uh, help. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for the, the book of Hebrews. It is wonderful. Thank you so much for its rich encouragements and also its sharp warnings. Uh, and we do last the Lord, uh, ask you, Lord, please, this morning, uh, impress upon us more deeply the realities of what it is to live the Christian life and uh, give us an enabling to live it um, and to follow you to the end. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I just don't get running. I don't really understand running as a leisure activity that's something people do for fun. Um, sure enough, yeah, if something's chasing you, run. You know? um, if you can't find any other form of exercise, maybe run. But to run because you think it's fun, particularly long-distance running, I, I think what sort of insanity is that? To, to put yourself through that relentless torture. Now, I'm just joking, sort of. Um, I know a bunch amongst us are, are long-distance runners, um, Tim Barling and MLJ, um, Katie Broadfoot, the McClimates, a bunch of people, and not just running, but running as if it isn't a thing, you know, just gliding along like you're taking a stroll at the beach, like you're sitting in a cafe sipping a latte, chatting to the person that you're running with when you're 15 k's into a 20k journey. Um, how do you do it? I see Katie Broadfoot running along with a friend and they look like they're standing by the pool, giggling together, <laughs> sipping a cocktail or something. For me, running is a life and death event. If we were African animals, Katie and her fellow long-distance runner would be like gazelles springing lightly across the savannah. I'm a warthog, grunting, <laughs> snorting, just trying to get somewhere. If I were to run a marathon, I would not make it to the end, I guarantee you. Now, that doesn't really matter. If it's just a running race and I don't get to the end, what does it matter? But if the race is a metaphor for the Christian life, which it is right here in chapter 12 of Hebrews, it desperately matters whether we get to the end. There's nothing more important in life than whether we get to the end of this race. As you know, the book of Hebrews has been on about this and on about this. Do not stop following Jesus. If you stop following Jesus, you have lost it all, eternally lost it. The preacher of the Hebrews is wonderfully, wonderfully reminded that if you have come to Jesus, you have received it all. You have everything. Full, absolute, total forgiveness of your sins. Utter cleansing of everything that you have ever done or will ever do. Total uninhibited access to God today, tomorrow, every day, on into eternity. And an eternal future in glory with the Lord forever and ever and ever. Just by trusting in Jesus and what he has done, not by anything we do. But if you let go of Jesus, if you don't stand with him to the end, if you don't run the race to the end, then you've lost it all. And so it's critical that we keep following Jesus and not give up. So what will keep us going? What will keep us going? What's going to keep us going in the Christian life and not giving up? Because the Christian life can be tough. You see, the Hebrew Christians to whom this was written knew how tough it was, that experienced persecution in the past and it looked like more persecution was on the horizon. They had suffered and it looked like more suffering was coming. Impact on their jobs, impact on their homes, impact on their children, impact on their physical health, perhaps even impact to their very lives. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you'll know that being a Christian is the best life, the most joy-filled life, the most purpose-filled life, but it is not the easiest life. There's easier lives out there for you. Hanging in there as a Christian can be tough, particularly over the long haul through the difficulties of this life. So, what will keep us going in the Christian life and not give up? 
A number of years ago, I read a book called uh, Good to Great, not a Christian book, but a very helpful book on understanding uh, effective leadership. And uh, there's a story in the book about a US admiral, Admiral, Admiral Jim Stockdale, who gets captured by the Vietnamese in the Vietnamese War and interned in the Hanoi Hilton prisoner of war camp for eight years. Um, treated brutally, as most captors do to those who they've captured. No human rights, uh, tortured over 20 times, uh, and no real hope of um, being released or getting out alive. Just brutal, brutal year after year. But in the midst of this, he continued to show leadership to his men. Uh, he continued to um, try to advocate for them to have better conditions. He refused to be used for uh, propaganda purposes. Um, and he sought to fight back by sending secret intelligence in letters to his wife. Eight years, brutally treated, but he survived. Now, when he was asked why he survived and so many others didn't, he had two almost paradoxical thoughts. The first one was an unwavering belief that in the end it would turn out well. And an unwavering belief that it would all be good in the future. Now, I don't know what his hope was based upon. It was largely wishful thinking. But it kept him going, the hope of a better future. But the other piece was just as important, and it was this. You had to confront the brutal facts. You had to embrace reality no matter how hard it was. He said the guys who couldn't confront the brutal facts, who couldn't embrace reality as it was, they didn't make it. The guys who were saying, we're going to be out by Christmas. We're going to be out by Easter. We're going to be out by Thanksgiving. They didn't make it because they weren't out by Christmas and then they weren't out by Easter and then they weren't out by Thanksgiving and they just died of a broken heart. Something inside them just gave up because they couldn't embrace the cold, hard facts of their present reality. Now, I think there's a real insight here, something particularly helpful what keeps us going, enduring in difficult circumstances? What will keep us going, enduring in the Christian life and not giving up? I think a key is to embrace present reality. Just to see the Christian life for what it actually is and to live it for what it actually is rather than pretending life is something that it isn't. To not pretend that life is to be filled with prosperity and success and victory and happiness and unicorns flying through the sky pooping rainbows. You know? Rather, to see the Christian life for what it actually is and embrace it. So, what is the reality of the Christian life? Well, firstly, it's a race that's long and hard. Look at the second half of verse 1. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. This is the key instruction in these first three verses. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Christian life is vividly pictured as a race, a race we're to run, not in order to win in the sense of beating each other, but in order to win in the sense of getting to the finish without stopping. You can see the end of verse 3 there, so that we don't grow weary and lose heart. That is, we don't tire of the race and collapse before the finish line. And you can tell that it's a long distance race because the word used for it is an agonia, a painful contest. It's where we get the word agony from. And three times through the passage, the word endure is used, sometimes translated persevere, endure, endure, endure. And in the end, we're exhorted not to grow weary. The image is very clear. The Christian life is not easy, it requires endurance. And there is, verse 3, a danger of growing weary and losing heart. And it's critical we don't do that and stop letting go of Jesus before the end of the race. As I've said, 
long distance running is not for me, but there is a long distance race I am a part of, whether I like it or not, and you too, if you trust and follow Jesus. It is the very nature of the Christian experience. If I choose to follow Jesus, it's, it's not some one-time thing. You know, I trust in Jesus one time and I get my get-out-of-jail-free card, which is going to get me into heaven. And I stick it in my back pocket and then I go away and I live my life however I want. And then one day I die, I stand before God and I pull it out. No, 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 God, I got my get-out-of-jail-free card. Do you remember that time way back then all those years ago? I put my trust in Jesus. Please let me into your heaven now. No, no, no. You can see from this that this is a forever decision. This is an all-of-life decision. If you choose to follow Jesus, it'll change your life from now till the day that you die. Now, I've shared this before, but six months before I became a Christian, God gave me a moment of absolute clarity around this, and I'm very, very thankful. Very, very thankful to the Christians who came into the school and uh, talked about the things of Jesus in Scripture. And it gave me absolute clarity. If I choose to follow Jesus, I'm 16. If I choose to follow Jesus now, it will impact from 16 to 116. It'll impact the whole rest of my life. And, and I was so thankful because right there and there in that moment of clarity, I knew I had to weigh up the cost. Is it worth it? And in that moment, I thought, no. No, this is not worth it. I can't give control of my life to Jesus for the rest of my life. That's a big cost. Six months later, God radically changed my heart as I understood Jesus died for me. <laughs> he loved me that much. Present reality for the Christians is that we're in a race that is long and hard. And the race marked out for us is in one sense the same for all of us. Just keep trusting Jesus, the life of faith that we saw in chapter 11, that we see in Jesus. In another sense, each race that each of us runs will be slightly different. Different difficulties, different ups and downs. In one season, it might feel like you are running up Heartbreak Hill and your friend is just gliding along on the flat. And in another season, that will flip around. Because our loving Heavenly Father knows what race each of us needs to run in order to keep shaping and moulding us to be like Jesus and keeping us safe in Him. And He gives us one another. So when one of us is running up the hill of pain and we don't think we can make it, the others can rally around, take the burden, carry the weight and help you run up the hill. And there'll be times that every single one of us needs that. We need one another. But in another sense, the race marked out is the same. Trust Jesus to the end until glory. That's the first reality of the Christian life, is that it's a race that's long and hard. The second reality of the Christian life is that there are dangers that threaten to crash us out of the race. So verse 1 again. Therefore... Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. The manner in which we're to run the Christian race is a throwing off matter. As you run, throw off hindrances and entanglements. See, present reality is that there are things that can hinder or entangle the Christian life, and if you don't pay attention to them, they can ultimately slow you down and stop you, take you out, of the race and so you never finish. So critical to pay attention to them. Two categories. The first is hindrances or things that hinder. Now these things are separate things to the sin that so easily entangles. They're not sinful things. They're good things given to us by God to, to enjoy with thanksgiving. But they're good things that can still hinder us in the Christian race. And the word hindrances there is actually more literally weights. 
either to be carrying excess body weight that stops you being able to run freely or carrying heavy things that hinder you in running the race well. Now, that's a hindrance. You imagine sticking a 20-kilo plate into a backpack and trying to run a marathon. It'll slow you down, it'll make it hard and probably ultimately stop you getting to the end. Imagine you turn up for a marathon, you're, you're limbering up, you're getting worn, and someone says, dude, why are you in your snow gear? Oh, yeah, this is not going to be easy. So you take off your snow boots and your snow pants and your snow jacket and your beanie and your gloves and your goggles and your shorts and a T-shirt. That's what you need. Run free from the hindrances that are going to slow you down and probably stop you getting to the end. The preacher of the Hebrews is encouraging us and saying, look at your life. Assess the things that you're doing and what effect they're actually having on you living the Christian life and making progress. And work out what things I should stop doing because they're actually hindering me growing as a Christian. They're excess baggage weighing me down and making it hard to progress. Good things, not sinful things, good things. But things that, although good, are acting like a weight and holding you back in running the Christian race. A couple of examples. One group of possible hindrances is just distractions from our responsibilities. So things that are good and enjoyable, not sinful, but they just take so much time that they distract us in the, from a godly Christian life. So it could be a sport you're engaged in, a hobby, a sport your kids are engaged in. Could be watching TV, could be watching sport, could be you know, your work, could be a whole range of things. Things that God has given in his goodness to enjoy, but it's possible to spend so much do time doing those things that it just gobbles up your time and energy to be involved in things like the Christian disciplines of Bible reading and prayer. Investing in our kids, in our grandkids to help them trust Jesus. Uh, can stop us from investing appropriately in church, from spending the adequate amount of time communicating with our spouse to grow our relationship and keep it strong, spending time with God's people for their good, for their growth. A possible area of hindrance is distraction. And so like a weight, throw it off or throw some of it off, cutting it back. Another group of hindrances is, is things that are good but have negative side effects. So, for instance, you can spend so much time thinking about something, either because you enjoy it or because you worry about it, that your mind is just consumed with it. You start to obsess about it. You start to love it. So that thing becomes the thing for us. And it can be the same things. Hobbies, sports, entertainments, a relationship, our plans for the future, our finances, our holidays, and you start to obsess about these things, say, yes, I love Jesus, but the reality is just our mind, our heart, our thoughts are so consumed with these other things all the time that Jesus doesn't really hit, fit. <laughs> Huge hindrance to our relationship with God. There's a couple of examples of possible hindrance categories, but now can I focus on one specific example of a side effect hindrance that I think is pervasive and has a huge impact upon us? And that is limbic technologies. Limber, what's a what, what? Limbic technologies. We're living in a technological revolution. The rate of technology is accelerating, accelerating rapidly. Always when new technology comes, it has good and evil. Humanity usually creates technologies to try to bring about good things, but humanity in their perversity always finds ways to equally bring about evil through that technology. Over the last about 15 years, seen a rapid growth of limbic technologies and with it the rise of a limbic economy, limbic capitalism. That is, 
a whole industry that is seeking to create technologies that are designed to tap directly into your limbic system and release hormones that make you want to keep using those technologies. The prime one being dopamine. So it's all the things we know, like social media, uh, video content like YouTube, which is a form of social media, uh, news feeds, games, anything that's designed to keep you scrolling, swiping, clicking, liking, retweeting, watching the next story, the next TikTok, building the next base in Clash of Clans, whatever it might be, because if these apps can keep you on the hook and in the moment, then they can sell you their ads and they can sell your data to everyone else. And so the design of the games, the social media, the nude feeds is designed in such a way that just keeps you scrolling and clicking. The colours, the sounds, the algorithms that feed you all the things that you really like, the whole experience, so that you click the next thing, scroll the next thing, the next thing, down the rabbit hole more and more. And the way it does this by all the time firing dopamine receptors in your brain. Dopamine, which has been called helpfully the molecule of motivation, the hormone that creates that inner drive to want to do and achieve and move forward. And so when you do hard things in life, achieve hard things, your brain rewards you with dopamine, which fires our brain for further motivation. It motivates you for more hard work. Super positive thing designed by God, because hard work produces motivation for more hard work. But if instead of hard work, you can just scroll, swipe, click, tag, and every scroll, every click actually pumps dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. There's an intensity of motivation to keep scrolling, to keep clicking, to keep gaming, to keep ticking, to keep, because there's some degree of pleasure in it, and yet it never satisfies because you always want more. That's the very nature of dopamine. It drives us in the search of more. It motivates us. But if we're flooding our system with dopamine in this way, it has at least two very negative consequences. And the first is obvious. It just wastes a lot of time. We're highly motivated, highly driven to be on our platforms. Facebooking and Instagramming and news feeding and TikToking and Discord and Twitch and Twitter and surfing the web and playing the latest game and watching that, whatever it is. How much time do we spend that is almost entirely unproductive? Get out your phone now. No, I won't get into this. Show us your screen time. Yeah? Go to your screen time. How, how much screen on average per day are you using and show it to the person next year. Yeah, imagine if I got you to do that or your computer, or a lot of unproductive time. Would we be embarrassed if others knew? But the second super negative impact of flooding our system with dopamine in this way is far, far more sinister, I think. I'm not a scientist, so you might want to chase this stuff down, but this is what I understand. It demotivates us from anything that takes any effort because it orients us to the place where we get the easiest dopamine fixes. Why would my brain ever want to do anything that takes hard work when it gets everything it needs right here? And as we know, pretty much anything of any value in life actually takes a bit of hard work. It's the nature of the Christian life too. The wonderful things of the Christian life usually take effort. Bible reading, prayer, deep thinking, being self-reflective, investing in our kids, investing in our spouses, serving others, thinking about what's good for us but we'll increasingly lack any sort of motivation to do these sort of things if our system is flooded with dopamine through social media, gaming and the like. Again, I'm not a scientist, but I think limbic technologies are one key contributor to mental health problems. How could they not be? Not just because social media, you can experience bullying, experience FOMO, experience discouragement and insecurity as you spy on the curated and photoshopped lives of others. All that's true. 
but just by the very fact it's actually doing things with our hormones. And so demotivating us from anything worthwhile, things that would actually bring us some true happiness. And it's deeply addictive. It can become so there's nothing else you want to do. Nothing else you want to do. But it never actually really makes you happy. Now, I can feel it in myself. Can't you feel it in yourself while you're doing it? I just want to keep scrolling. Because there must be something amazing coming, can't there? The next swipe, the next click. There must be something that's just make me feel alive and so happy. And so you, you, you keep going. But there isn't. But the Doberman keeps screaming, yes. Keep scrolling. There is something so amazing coming. You cannot believe it. Scroll again. Scroll again. This is a gateway drug to pornography. Very, very tiny step across. And once you step into the pornographic world, it is supercharged dopamine experience, which is one of the reasons it's so addictive and so difficult to break. I think the growth of limbic technologies has become a huge hindrance in the Christian life. And if you think, I have no idea what you're talking about, this is not me, it's probably your kids or your grandkids. It's affecting all of us, and this is a new area for this to engage and think about. And so let's talk together about this and work out ways forward where this not hinder us in the Christian life. Good things that actually can do be weights that weigh us down. People who are aware of these things now talk about things like managing their dopamine or actually having dopamine detoxes, actually getting off dopamine screen activities and going cold turkey for a day, for a week getting outside, reading, uh, slowing down. That's an example of something we may need to think about as a hindrance in the Christian life. So firstly, there's hindrances. But secondly, there's entanglements. And these are easier because they're very clear. <laughs> they're sins. They're things that God in his word has told us are wrong, disobedience. And they entangle or entrap, which is vivid, isn't it? You, know, you can imagine running along in a race and something wrapping around your ankles and hitting the ground so hard, it's over. You know, you're just out of the race. One time I went um, ice skating with a bunch of youth, uh, youth group, and um, there was this guy from our youth group and he was skating along at a fair bit of speed and he caught the ice and he just went down so hard, face first, boom, teeth knocked out. Makes me Makes me, <laughs> ooh, teeth just juicy thinking about it. Um, now, he, he didn't get back up and, and skate on. You know, it, it was over skating for him for the night. Now, falling into a tangling sin can smash your Christian life so hard because you slip into unrepentance that it can take you out. And the preacher here is wants us to take unrepentant sin seriously because it can, can cause you to turn from Jesus and be eternally lost. The tricky thing about it is it's often sneaky. It's often slow, step by step, like a, a vine that wraps around another plant, a weed, and then just chokes the life slowly out of it. And you don't know it's happening. Or like bait that lures a fish. You know, imagine you're a fish. It's, it's, the sun comes up and the, the sun is shining through the ocean and your little tummy tells you, it's brekkie time, it's brekkie time. And so you, you swim around and take a big smell and you think, mmm, smelly, tasty, fishy fish smell. And so you swim over to where it is, and there it is, sure enough. Smelly, tasty, fishy fish just sitting there, not trying to swim away. It's almost as if the ocean has provided it for you. And so you take a nibble, mm, a nibble, mm, nibble. <coughs> the hook jags you through the mouth, and suddenly you're thrashing around, but you can't get away, and you tire, and you're pulled into the boat, and you end up at someone's dinner. Now, you never want to fish again after that, do you? <laughs> but... 
that's nibble the beta sin. Nibble the beta sin a bit more. Nibble the beta sin. Oh, it's so tasty. And your heart hardens slowly against God. And eventually the hook jags you or goes deep down into your gullet and you're hooked and reeled in away from Jesus. If you want to get to the end of the race, can I encourage you, don't muck around with sin. I won't spend time on specific sins. We'll see some of that when we come to chapter 13. But two sins he points out in chapter 13 are to do with sexual immorality and love of money. And they're classics. In the 90s, I owned a pair of boardies, um, which I love. They're gone now, but I love them. And the brand was SMP. I'm sure some of you must have had SMP uh, clothing, a surf, snow, skate brand. And the acronym didn't stand for one thing. It sort of standard for, stood for anything you wanted it to stand for. So shred more powder, surf more pipes, skate more parks, smoke more pot. But the, the main meaning of the brand was sex, money, power. Sex, money, power. Because isn't that what captures a lot of what our society desires? And young, hedonistic culture, as much sex as I can get, as much money as I can get, as much power as I can get. In our world, that's called winning. Well, that's a triple threat to the Christian life. You want things that will just take you out? Sexual immorality. Destroy your marriage through adultery. Love of money. The cultivation of power in your career, your position, your social standing. I think it's worth asking ourselves, what's my price? If I were really honest with myself, what's the thing that if I knew I could definitely get that thing, I might just let go of Jesus. Because knowing that actually might protect you. And if you're in sin and you know, can I encourage you to come back to Jesus because there's full, complete cleansing if you come to him. And he will empower you to move forward in the Christian life along with your brothers and sisters. So, you want to get to the end of the Christian life and not give up? Embrace reality. The Christian life is a race that's long and hard and there will be dangers that threaten us along the way. But... There's something else that's also going to help us persevere in the race, and this is critical. Embrace present reality, but embrace present reality focused on deeper realities. Look at the second half of verse 1. And let us run the race with perseverance. Mark the, yeah, I got that wrong. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What will stop us growing weary and losing heart in the hardships of the Christian life? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Considering Jesus. The one who's run the race before us and endured and made it to the end. But I want to focus on what will you see when you fix your eyes on Jesus? What are the deeper realities that you see in Jesus that will help you run the race? From these verses, I think there's four. Well, I've got four. Two very short too slightly longer. The first deeper reality is this. Jesus is on the throne. Do you see there in verse 2 it says, Jesus, having endured the cross, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Finished the race, victorious, now seated in glory, ruling the universe. Jesus is on the throne. So no matter how long or hard the race may be, no matter how difficult the circumstances and how dangerous the things that threaten, if you look to Jesus, you can be reminded he is all-powerful, he is in control, he loves his people, and he is looking after me. And so as you look to Jesus, remember, ah, seated at the right hand of God, ruling the universe. One, I can keep going because Jesus is on the throne. Deeper reality two, Jesus will perfect our faith. 
Because he's done it all. When you fix your eyes on Jesus, verse 2, you're fixing your eyes on the pioneer and perfecter of faith. The author and publisher, the foundation, founder and finisher of faith. It depends on Jesus from first to last. He has done it all. And there seems to be a little bit of ambiguity here. Is it talking about the faith or our faith? And I think the ambiguity is probably intentional. He's actually talking about both. Jesus is the author and perfecter of the faith and our faith. See, is Jesus, has he authored and perfected the faith in the sense of full salvation for humanity by being humanity's champion? Yes. Jesus done it all. The perfect faithful high priest offering himself as the perfect once for all sacrifice for all sins, sitting down victorious at his father's right hand. Jesus has authored and perfected this faith, the fullness of salvation in the cross for anyone who believes. But Jesus also authored and perfected our faith, applied the cross to us by drawing us to trust in him by faith so that we might be made perfect in God's sight. And he will carry that faith on to completion. Jesus has authored his people's faith. He will complete his people's faith. From start to end, Jesus fully accomplishes everything for our faith. So if you're running the race and you think, I don't think I can make it, then you look to Jesus as the one who has started your faith, who will finish your faith. He will carry it through from beginning to end. And so you can run the race with confidence. It's the second. I can keep going because Jesus will perfect my faith. Third deeper reality. There's a joy that's coming. And this is the big one. Even before looking at Jesus, we see this reality in the cloud of witnesses, verse 1. Uh, the cloud of witnesses are there to encourage us, motivate us, model for us the Christian life. The cloud just means host, a big mass of them. And it says, therefore, since. So verse 1, it tells us who that cloud of witnesses is. So we heard last week, these witnesses are the heroes of the faith that we looked at. Men and women who, despite their frailties and their flaws, so think of cowardly Gideon, violent, womanizing Samson. These people, despite their frailties and flaws, lived lives by faith. They lived trusting the promises of God and particularly trusting the promise of God for the future even though it was costly in the present. So they ran the race. They endured the hardships of the race. They ran towards the finish line that was promised by God that they couldn't actually see with their eyes, could only see by the eyes of faith. And you see guys like Moses, for example, chose to give up the treasures of Egypt and be mistreated along with God's people because he could see his reward. He could see the joy in the distance. He endured in anticipation of the joy to come in the future. And they're not witnesses in the sense that they're watching us. I think you can read verse 1 and think, oh, it's the picture of a stadium filled with the heroes of the faith watching down on us as we run around the track. They're witnessing us. But what it actually means is they're witnessing to us. They're not watching us. We're watching them. We're looking at their lives as models and motivation to keep coming so that we, like them, keep trusting the promise of God about the joyful future that's coming, the finish line that's near. It's worth enduring the hardships of running the race now because what's coming is, is so wonderful. The lives of the witnesses cry out to us, the joy at the end is worth the cost now. But there's another witness given to motivate us, and that's the Lord Jesus himself. Witness above all witnesses. Who, verse 2, for the joy set before him endured the cross. He saw the finish line. 
He saw the joy set before him, and in anticipation of that, he endured the unendurable. Can you imagine the worst thing you could possibly imagine? Well, the worst thing that could possibly ever take place is to die on the cross under the wrath of God for all humanity's sin. And yet Jesus endured that. The worst fate you could possibly imagine, and he endured it by looking forward to the joy that was set before him. What is that joy? We looked at it a bit last week. What is that joy? It's a package tied up together. The joy of saving sinners and bringing that work to completion. The joy of living in obedience to his Father and giving his Father glory in that work. And the joy of being exalted again back to his Father's right hand, reunited and exalted to the position of rule. And it's that joy that brought him to the end. That package that he was anticipation anticipating that enabled him to run with endurance, finishing the work of saving sinners, being exalted to rule at his father's right hand and bringing his father all glory and honour. That joy enabled him to run through the pain. And so just like the witnesses, Jesus' life cries out to us, the end, the joy at the end is worth any cost now. You might have noticed um, there's a lot of babies being born around here. And each week we get to see the finished product put up on the screens. You know? Little baby, swaddled, wrapped up, dad so proud, and mum radiant. Now if we could take the camera a few hours earlier, go into the birthing suite and take a photo of the mum's face, it would not look the same. <laughs> I can't imagine what it's like pushing something the size of a rock melon out of my body. But well done, that's endurance. But you endure it all because... The joy set before you, a beautiful little baby. You, you endure pregnancy, the change to your body, the tiredness, the sickness, the, but you endure it all for the joy set before you, a beautiful little baby. And then you go back and do it again, and you go back and do it again because the joy is so great. That's the deeper reality. There's a joy that's coming, being with the Lord in glory, that is so wonderful, it's worth enduring anything now. Fourth, finally, Deeper reality for what the world sees as shameful isn't actually shameful. And I find this one very, very profound. Did you notice the little phrase? Look in verse 2. Did you notice the little phrase? Scorning at shame. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame. Right there, we see an attitude that Jesus possessed that I think is just so helpful for us as we run the Christian race. In the ancient world, the cross was the ultimate in shame, in humiliation. Brutally torturous, vulgar thing. Hanging there naked, degraded, humiliated, dying publicly. In Roman society, polite Roman society, you did not speak about crucifixion. It was so shameful. But do you see Jesus' attitude to it? He scorned at shame. He didn't scorn the, the cross. No, he embraced the cross. He scorned the shame of the cross. And what is it to scorn something? Well, think about a, a scorning a person. You scorn a person, you have disdain for them, contempt for them. You treat them as if they're a nothing, a nobody, a worthless thing. That's how Jesus treated the shame of the cross. He treated the shame of the cross as if it were a nothing, as if with disdain, with contempt. He shamed the shame. To the world, the cross is humiliating and shameful, but not to Jesus. To him, the cross is glorious. This is his moment of perfect obedience to his Father. This is his moment of completing the work of saving sinners. This is his moment of ultimate glory. 
the cross shameful? It will always look shameful to the world. But not to Jesus, not to us. This is a deeper reality that helps us endure the race. What the world sees as shameful is not actually shameful. It's beautifully glorious. When the world mocks you and says your life of following Jesus is a shameful thing, a humiliating thing, a a nothing life, a waste of a life, even an evil life, what do you do? You fix your eyes on Jesus who embraced the cross that was the most shameful thing people could imagine. And he scorned at shame, disdaining it, treating the shame as if it were nothing. Because what was shameful to the world is not shameful to Jesus. In fact, it was beautifully glorious. And so when you're at work, and it feels like the things that you believe as a Christian are just so against what most people think that it's shameful to believe those things. That you don't want to say anything because they are shameful things to believe these days. Scorn the shame. God's truths are never shameful. The world thinks they're shameful, but they're never shameful. They are beautiful and good and glorious. When you're at a Christmas party this year with old friends or at Christmas lunch with your extended family and everyone's talking about their incredibly amazing holidays and their profoundly huge portfolios and their amazingly successful kids and by comparison your life just looks so small and humble and ordinary because you just gave yourself to Jesus and the things that were important to him, his church and serving, loving others and And you start to feel embarrassed and ashamed that your life is just so substandard by comparison to those of the world. Scorn the shame. A humble, ordinary life lived just to follow Jesus is a beautifully glorious and rich life. Be like Jesus. Embrace the shame of following Jesus not as shame. The humiliation of following Jesus not as humiliation. It's glorious. And if we do that, we're just treading the path that our Lord trod. Four. I can keep going because what the world sees as shameful isn't actually shameful. So run the race with perseverance. Throwing off hindrances, throwing off entanglements, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Not fixing your eyes on yourself because you'll get discouraged. Not fixing your eyes on the world around you because you'll probably start to see things that you feel you're missing out on. Not fixing your eyes on those who oppose you because you'll probably feel afraid. But fixing your eyes on Jesus and the deep realities that we see in him, that he models for us. He's on the throne. He will perfect our faith. There's a joy that is coming that's worth enduring anything now for. And what the world sees as shameful isn't actually shameful. We're going to pray in a moment, but before we pray, why don't you take a moment to think about either or both of these? What might I need to throw off? And which of these deeper realities could I focus on more? So either or both. What might I need to throw off? And which of these deeper realities might I need to focus on more? I'll give you a moment as the band comes up and then we'll pray. Let's pray. Oh, Father, please um, look after and protect us. Please enable us to run the race marked out for us, to persevere and endure even when it's difficult, and to help each other to run. Uh, Please enable us to throw off the things that are hindering us and the sins that uh, threaten to entangle us. And please, Lord, help us to have our eyes uh, fixed on Jesus and to know all the wonderful things in him, particularly the future that awaits us. 
And uh, Lord, this morning, I pray, if anyone is close to giving up, please fortify their faith. Rally people around them. Keep us all with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.